Most young men are fools. Amen? Amen. At least I know I was and maybe am still. Sometimes the Lord does graciously gift a young man with extraordinary wisdom. I wonder if sometimes that gift might be given to men who will die young. One such man who died at the age of 28 penned these famous words wise words in his journal six years before his death at the youthful age of 22. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Do you know the man? That's right, Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot and his companions would be murdered by fierce Ecuadorian warriors in the jungle, the very warriors that Eliot had hoped to tell about Jesus Christ. There's some question as to whether Jim and his friends were exercising wisdom in their method of approach, evaluating not only the outcome, but also the plan and the memories of their widows, suggests there may have been a bit of youthful zeal, perhaps even a foolish hastiness. It was, after all, two widows and a fatherless daughter who would return to those warriors to introduce them to King Jesus and tell them the good news that these vicious murderers could enter the kingdom of heaven and have eternal life too. So we look back and we see that Jim Elliot gave up his life, his wife, and his daughter And God used that sacrifice to pave the way for the salvation of many. That may not have been what Jim expected when he wrote those words, which have become so famous in his journal at the age of 22. Jim Elliot was not particularly rich, and as a young man, he certainly wasn't living his life pursuing riches. He had received the gift of eternal life when he was a child. And his evangelist father and many missionaries influenced him from a young age to look at life through a missional lens. The deceitfulness of riches, Jesus warned about in the parable of the sower and the soils, never seemed to have threatened him. Proverbs 11.4 teaches us that riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Profit doesn't really profit. Your bucks won't truly benefit you. Your net worth is completely worthless. On Judgment Day, how much money you had in the bank, how much your property was worth, how your investments were doing, or the number of your possessions won't matter one little bit. God cannot be bribed. And He's not impressed by our our accumulation of stuff in the world. In fact, the Apostle Paul would insist that we should all be asking, what do you have that you did not receive? The second line of that proverb, however, taken by itself, might lead us to the wrong conclusion. Our money can't buy salvation from God's wrath, but maybe our righteous deeds, if we have enough of them, maybe enough to outnumber or outweigh our sins and failures, or if we have the right kinds of them, maybe a particularly unique righteous deed. Surely this proverb teaches that some good deed I can do, will deliver me from God's judgment and eternal death. If we bring in another verse from the Old Testament, side by side with Proverbs 11.4, we find a tension that clarifies the reality 
for us and sets us up to properly despair of both our riches and our righteousness to have eternal life. In Isaiah 57, the Lord is describing the wicked idolatry of the Jews, especially in verses 3 to 13. In verse 12, Yahweh says to them, I will expose your righteousness and your works. They will not profit you. Proverbs 11.4 says that your riches won't profit you. Isaiah 57.12 says that your righteousness, your works, won't profit you. So where do we get that righteousness that Proverbs 11.4 says will deliver from death? At the end of Isaiah 57.13, we get an answer that points us forward to the ultimate answer. The Lord says to His wicked, idolatrous people, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Yahweh promises an inheritance to all who abandon idols and take refuge in Him. In Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, we come to this same final answer. The inheritance of eternal life can only be received as a gift by those who follow Jesus, those who take refuge in Jesus. The rich young ruler is a rich young fool. And he approaches Jesus asking a foolish question. And Jesus may give us the clearest example in the Bible of following the instruction of Proverbs 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Jesus' response to this man is not what we would expect, but it is what this man needed to hear And the whole conversation provides an important lesson for Jesus' disciples, both then and now. But before we get to that interaction, we need to see the context. What was happening when the rich young fool approaches Jesus? Matthew's gospel has been telling the story of Jesus bringing the heavenly kingdom to the earth. And in Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15, we read about the disciples responding wrongly showing that they did not learn Jesus' earlier lesson about kingdom children. Look at Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. It was just one chapter earlier, probably just days before this event, this encounter that we read in Matthew 18, 3, Jesus telling the disciples, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples have not yet repented in that way. They have not yet become like children. They have not, therefore, entered the kingdom of heaven. So here... They think their time with Jesus is not to be interrupted by parents of young children and babies who just want Rabbi Jesus to ask for God to bless their children. Whenever Jewish rabbis traveled around, parents often brought their infants and their small children to them, hoping that the rabbis would take the children in their laps or in their arms, touch them, and pray for them. Jesus was eager to do this, not only for the encouragement it would bring to the parents, but also as a remedial lesson for the disciples. Jesus insists that it is appropriate for little children to be brought to Jesus. 
we can get bogged down when we start asking questions like, when can a child really understand the gospel? Is there an age of accountability that we need to worry about? Parents, talk to your kids about Jesus from day one. I'm grateful for those of you who volunteer to serve in children's ministry, whether in Sunday school, junior church, or the nursery. I'm grateful that the Lord has called and equipped some Christians to develop picture Bibles, curriculum, videos, and other material that point even the smallest children to who Jesus is and what He's done. But parents, the primary responsibility is yours. If you're not talking about Jesus with your children at home, God can still save them, but you need to repent. Fathers, it is especially your charge and responsibility. When Paul commands fathers in Ephesians 6-4 to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that last phrase, of the Lord, is not meant to be generic, as though it said, instruct your children in spiritual and moral things. Rather, Fathers, you are being commanded to raise your children with the, dis- dis- with the discipline and instruction of the Lord Jesus. Fathers and mothers, talk, teach your children about Jesus. Talk to your children about Jesus. Learn to apply the gospel to situations of discipline. The church is meant to supplement the home instruction that's going on, not substitute for it. As in Matthew 18, the chastisement of the disciples here has to do with their apparent inability or their refusal to understand that trusting and obeying Jesus, the way children came to respond positively to His voice, is what citizenship in His kingdom looks like. But then, the rich young ruler arrives. And I think we must see him as a contrast to the little children. The wealth and possessions that this man has acquired are the exact opposite of a little child who owns nothing and must depend on others for everything. The rich young ruler must become like a child if he is to enter the kingdom. While this story is famous, it is troubling in many ways. One writer has said, no one can take comfort from this story. It is profoundly disturbing. Let's see why that's the case. Look at verses 16 to 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this encounter is told to us also in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. It's from Luke that we learn that this young man was a ruler of some kind, but beyond that, we can't be specific about what his role or position was. That he was wealthy probably indicates that he would have been well-known in the community. 
Unless he traveled to find Jesus from far away, Jesus and the disciples may already know who this man is. Each of the gospel accounts are slightly different, and some of the more interesting uniquenesses we'll look at along the way. First, we need to consider the man's bad question in verse 16. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? If eternal life is a gift of God's grace, as the Apostle Paul would famously make clear in Romans 6, 23, then doing something to earn it is impossible. Thus, this man starts off on the wrong foot, asking the wrong question. Presumably, this man is a Jew, and so he already has instruction in the Bible about what is required for life. And Jesus is going to meet this young fool where he is. But Jesus' answer is going to start by challenging the man's starting point. But before we look at Jesus' good answer, consider another important detail about the man's bad question. He asks here about having eternal life. Matthew has shaped this passage around the word have. This man's initial question treats eternal life as a possession to be acquired, perhaps even bought with his great wealth or earned by some special act of service, some extraordinary good deed, you know, beyond ordinary kinds of obedience to God's word. Perhaps he has heard how Jesus said in the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the Kingdom of Heaven. So after Jesus challenges him with the Ten Commandments, The man recognizes that obedience to the Ten Commandments must not be enough. So he will ask Jesus what he still lacks, doesn't have, in verse 20. Then Jesus identifies the one thing this man lacks and promises that if this young man would obey Jesus' words here, then he will have treasure in heaven. Finally, at the very end, Matthew notes the reason for his rejection is that the man had great possessions. Curiously, the other gospel accounts of this story have the man asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. When Jesus turns to instruct his disciples after they've witnessed this encounter, he will use the language of inheritance. In this young fool's mouth, he must have said something like, what good deed must I do to have eternal life as an inheritance? But in his mouth, the language of inheritance is significantly confused. After all, you typically don't earn an inheritance. It's bequeathed, gifted to you by your ancestors. Inheritance is received by an heir, someone who has the proper family connection. But the language of having eternal life is biblical. In fact, it's used in John's writings repeatedly. Famously, in the verse that was quoted in here at the very beginning of the service, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In every case, in John's writings, it's faith, believing, that is required for someone to have eternal life. So there is a sense in which it is appropriate to speak of having eternal life. And if you were asked... What good thing must I do to have eternal life? Wouldn't you say something like 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life? That's not the answer Jesus gives this young ruler. So what is Jesus' good answer to the man's bad question? We remember that Jesus lists off several commandments, but before he tells the man something to do, he answers the man's question with a question. Look again at verse 17. Jesus asks him, Why do you ask me about what is good? Behind Jesus' question, as will become clear by what Jesus says next, God's law provides the proper answer to the man's question. God's law defines what is good. Why does this man need to ask the teacher, Jesus, to define what is already clear in the Old Testament scriptures? Then Jesus adds to that with a seemingly unrelated comment. Jesus says, there is only one who is good, clearly referring to God alone. Jesus sets the proper context for the list of commandments he's about to quote from the Old Testament law. Much is often made about the fact that Jesus only quotes from the second half of the Ten Commandments, which all focus on how Israelites were supposed to treat each other. And Jesus adds the commandment from Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Thus, he does not specifically reference the first half of the Ten Commandments, which focus on how Israelites were supposed to respond to God. Nevertheless, with this mention of the truth that only God is good, Jesus draws the man's attention to the preface of the Ten Commandments, which highlights the goodness and grace of God. I have mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. When we think of the Ten Commandments, we dare not forget the preface or the preamble, as it's sometimes called. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... God does not issue commands before grounding those commands in who He is and what He has done for the people He commands. In other words, the biblical pattern from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between is gospel before law. The done of God's grace must come before the do of God's commands. And so it is with this rich young fool. He would like to approach God and have eternal life based on His doing, as a reward for His doing. And it seems, apart from consideration of what God has done, Jesus will have none of that foolishness. Notice also that Jesus subtly links Himself with the one good God. It is appropriate for this man to ask Jesus about what is good, because there's only one who is good, and that's God, and Jesus is But Jesus goes on answering this fool according to his folly. Thus, without giving the man time to consider and respond, he answers the man's question, but he reframes it. Look again at the last sentence of verse 17. Jesus says to him, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The man had asked about having eternal life. Jesus reframes the discussion in terms of entering life. We're going to see how this encounter and Jesus' teaching on his, for, of his disciples paints a very rich picture of salvation for us in just a moment. But the change in terms is not to be missed. Jesus is speaking of salvation, eternal life, as a journey. He has often spoken of entering the kingdom, 
In the Kingdom Life Discourse, for example, he had commanded his listeners in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The narrowness of the entry gate and the tightness of the pathway depicts Jesus as the only way to salvation and the tribulation and opposition faced by those who follow Jesus. As we talked about when we looked at that passage, entering the kingdom has a dual, already but not yet, reference that we need to grasp. In one sense, sinners enter life and enter the kingdom the moment they trust in Jesus. But in another sense, we enter the kingdom when we enter the new Jerusalem after our resurrection from the dead. Initial entrance is like gaining our citizenship papers, and we receive those by faith alone. But final entrance refers to our arrival in the kingdom when we are raptured or raised from the dead. Thus, we have to think about which sense Jesus has in mind when he responds to this young fool's question. The entrance requirement Jesus gives is keeping the commandments. In this response, I think Jesus is describing the pathway that must be walked for a person to enter the New Jerusalem on Judgment Day. As one writer puts it, the road to life is the road of God's commandments. Obedience is required. But there is a prerequisite, as it were, something that must come before obedience. And Jesus has hinted at it in pressing the man to believe in the goodness of God. Faith in God's goodness will lead to obedience to God's good commands. Nevertheless, Jesus is answering the fool according to his folly. He's meeting the man where he started. He won't leave him there, but he's starting with him there. So the man asks what he must do, and the doing that is indeed required is obedience. Jesus' answer is good, right, and true. Those who keep the commandments will enter life. But this answer does not satisfy the rich young fool. He has the gall to ask, which commandments? Why doesn't he hear Jesus saying all the commandments? Nevertheless, he wants a list, so Jesus gives him a list. Six commands that the man should have been all too familiar with. As we noticed a minute ago, five come from the Ten Commandments, and Jesus adds the command for loving one's neighbor from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus highlights commands that can be obeyed or disobeyed visibly. This perhaps provides a more objective test for the young man. For example, Jesus could go and ask people in his family whether or not he has properly honored his parents. Then in verse 20, the man claims to have obeyed these six commands, but he seems to recognize that even his consistent obedience to these six commands must not be enough. There must be something else. Steady obedience to God's straightforward commands is too simple for this man. Surely there must be more. So he wants to know what one thing he must still be lacking. This is finally the right question. And indeed, Jesus identifies the one thing lacking in verse 21. Look at it again. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go 
Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Mark and Luke specify this string of commands as the one thing that this man still lacks. Matthew alone utilizes the language of perfection. In Matthew 5.48, in the Kingdom Life Discourse, Jesus had said to his disciples, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is required of all followers of Jesus. The English word perfect really trips us up here. We think in terms of moral perfection or total sinlessness. That is not what the word is communicating. Though our heavenly Father is indeed morally perfect and totally sinless, the Greek word does not communicate those ideas. The New American Standard Bible is helpful here as it translates Jesus' words in Matthew 19.21 as, if you wish to be complete. It's odd that the New American Standard Bible has inconsistently left Matthew 5.48 with the word perfect, but the idea in both places is better communicated with words like complete. Doesn't the word complete essentially mean lacking nothing? The man wants to know, what one thing do I still lack? And Jesus answers, if you would lack nothing, be complete. It's actually reflective of some Old Testament language that speaks of undivided loyalty or wholehearted obedience. Jesus' response here in verse 21 begins the exact same way his response began in verse 17 with the words, if you would In verse 17, Jesus said, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. In verse 21, he says, if you would be perfect, go, sell, give, and come, follow me. For this man to be complete and full, he must empty himself of whatever hinders him from full devotion to God and his kingdom. All of this man's possessions, all of this man's wealth, all of this man's apparent righteousness has not deposited one penny worth of treasure in heaven. Or as Proverbs 11.4 says again, riches will not profit on the day of wrath. And as Isaiah 57.12 says again, your own righteousness, your own good deeds will not profit before the Lord, not as long as you remain fundamentally an idolater. Do you hear this as a harsh demand from Jesus? Why must this man sell all of his possessions? First, notice that there are actually four commands, not just one, and they're not all equal commands. That is to say, the final command carries all the definitive weight. The first three commands are prerequisites. Until he obeys the first three commands, he cannot obey the last one. Go, sell all, donate the revenue, and until you do that, your heart remains loyal to your stuff as your God. We might wonder if the man even heard that final command so shocking and disheartening to him was the command to sell all his stuff. Destroy your idols as a necessary prerequisite to worship of the one true God that he will accept. God doesn't accept your worship as long as you're still also worshiping idols. To follow Jesus is to enter life the very thing the man came to ask about. To follow Jesus is to be 
perfect, complete. For Jesus is our perfection. Jesus is our completion. He completes us. The call to follow Jesus is the call to believe in Jesus. Thus, Jesus actually is not saying anything different than we find in the Gospel of John. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. I've called this man Sad Mr. Moneybags. And the sermon title indicates that he owns everything except the kingdom. We'll see his sadness in just a moment, but for now, everything he owns is a threat and a danger to him. His stuff will damn him as long as he clings to it. He must get rid of it all. Jesus calls for exclusive allegiance. As one writer puts it, faith in Jesus cannot exist where there is trust in something else. At least faith that leads to eternal life. Go, sell, give, and come follow Jesus. That is the call to believe in Jesus alone. That is the call to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your stuff. Sometimes, to love God with all your stuff, you have to get rid of all your stuff. Now that raises an interesting question. We know that Jesus doesn't tell everyone to get rid of all their stuff. We think quickly of Zacchaeus, who only gave half his goods to the poor. And this was an evidence that he had experienced salvation. So, can we comfort ourselves that Jesus wouldn't necessarily call us to get rid of all of our stuff? Not so fast. As one writer says, that Jesus didn't command each and every one of his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. In another place, Jesus speaks more universally as he instructs people to count the cost of discipleship, to count the cost of following Jesus. In Luke 14, we read, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Uh-oh. It's time for a bit of self-examination. Are there rivals to Jesus in your home? Things vying for your allegiance? Things you trust in for your security? Are you ready to sing, as we did earlier, honestly and from the heart, Martin Luther's famous words from A Mighty Fortress, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Your stuff won't be. Neither possessions nor relationships can provide eternal security. They don't even prove effective in cultivating your happiness. Renounce all such weak substitutes. This rich young ruler needed to get rid of all of it because he was trusting in all of it. Maybe you personally, don't need to get rid of all of it. But you do need to hear this word from Jesus challenging you to do something about it that shows that your faith really is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Don't let your possessions possess you. This young fool had taken his possessions as what gives him security, even before the Lord. As theologian Tom Wright presses home the point here, in order to be complete... You must be empty. In order to have everything, you must have nothing. 
In order to be fully signed up to God's service, you must be signed off from everything else. Or as another commentator emphasizes, summarizes the whole encounter up to this point, how then finally do you, we come to eternal life? By keeping the commands. How do we do that? By giving up our gods. How do we do that? By following Jesus. This is the text's full answer to the question of eternal life. This man's sad departure is truly depressing. Luke's way of putting it is stark. In Luke 18, 23, we read, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Very sad. Extremely rich. It is stunning how often we hear about extremely rich people in this world being very sad. It's as though their wealth doesn't make them happy. This man couldn't calculate that treasure in heaven is far better than riches on the earth. He did not understand what Jim Elliot had come to understand. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. However, Jesus offers this fool treasure in heaven, which is surely a figure of speech for the eternal life that this man was seeking in the first place. In this sense, the pearl of great value had been uncovered before his eyes, but he refuses to sell all he has so that he might buy it. And he reveals that he loves his stuff more than he loves either God or his neighbor. Said differently, the thorns of wealth have choked out the gospel so that the seed sown in this soil will bear no fruit. Uniquely, Mark tells us that Jesus loved this man. Mark 10.21 is the only time in Matthew, Mark, or Luke where Jesus is said to love anyone John's gospel famously speaks of Jesus loving several individuals, as well as his disciples in general, all who obey Jesus and his heavenly Father. Mark inserts that comment right after the man claims to have kept all the commandments Jesus lists. In what way does Jesus love this man? He tells him the truth about what he lacks. It is an expression of Christ-like love when you tell someone the truth about their sin, their idolatry, and about their false beliefs. When you warn people about the danger of hell, you are loving like Christ loves. And when you point out sin in a fellow Christian's life, you should be expressing Christ-like love. In this sense, Jesus turns to his disciples now and loves them in the very same way with a very hard lesson about the impossibility of salvation. Look at verses 23 to 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The disciples are listening to Jesus converse with the rich young ruler. Jesus knows this. As soon as sad Mr. Moneybags walks away, Jesus turns to the disciples and says these shocking words. For these Jewish men, they would have assumed that the rich young ruler was the ideal candidate for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. 
They would have viewed his wealth as an indicator of God's previous blessings on his life. God's favor toward this man. Verses like Proverbs 10.22 would have rung in their minds. The blessing of Yahweh makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Jesus wants to obliterate this way of thinking. He heads off the kind of partiality Christians can be tempted toward, even in church settings. James chapter 2 builds on this, calling those who think rich people must be closer to the kingdom and thus should be treated with special recognition as judges with evil thoughts. Jesus, in another place, chastises those who would lay up treasure for themselves without being rich toward God. And James 2.5 reminds us that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him. So here, Jesus highlights how wealth deceives men into trusting in it as a means of salvation, such that when real salvation is offered to them, they run into a wall. He gives them the vivid picture of the fat camel attempting to squeeze through the tiny hole at the top of a sewing needle. And he says that fat camel is more likely to make it through than any rich person will make it into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples' astonishment is actually very clarifying for what's been at stake all along in this conversation. They ask incredulously, who then can be saved? Their assumption, again, is that a person's material wealth could be viewed as an indicator that God is blessing that person. Maybe we could say it like this. The disciples would assume that God gives material riches to people in the world as a way of blessing them or even as a way of drawing them. God gives extra wealth to a person so that that person might recognize his wealth as one of the good gifts that they've been given so that the person would then be eager to give thanks to God and receive the much more important gift of salvation and eternal life. Jesus seeks to wake them up to the reality that a person's riches always become a person's God. What does Paul say about all humanity in Romans 1, 21? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God does indeed give wealth to people as a gift. Everything that is rightly called good in this world ultimately comes from Him. But wealth by itself doesn't provoke sinful people to thank God for the gifts they've received. On the contrary, they take the gift and turn it into an object of worship and devotion, driving them to acquire more. Every human being on the planet has a number of barriers that must be overcome for them to be saved. Spiritually dead, numb, blind to God's glory, deaf to God's word, turned inward in self-absorption, turned outward in hostility toward God and others, enslaved to Satan, desires twisted toward evil, All of that is just a description of how every human being on the face of the planet comes into this world, according to the Scriptures. Add to that 
wealth. And you've got a recipe for doom, disaster, and eternal destruction. And all of that is what God overcomes every time He saves a sinner. No wonder the eternal Son of God had to die to fix all of that. God can grant repentance to wealthy people and all other kinds of sinners too. God can get that fat camel through the eye of that tiny needle. The disciples' shocked question is not dismissed or caveated by Jesus. They ask, who then can be saved? Their question makes clear what the rich young ruler was asking about. Having eternal life, entering life, being perfect, entering and inheriting the kingdom, all of those are phrases that are bound up with being saved by God, being rescued from our plight by God. The disciples understood that part of the conversation. Jesus doesn't correct their question. He simply answers, with man, this is impossible. Human resources, human abilities are irrelevant when it comes to talking about salvation. Irrelevant. The Greek word translated impossible could just as well be translated unable. From the human perspective, considering human nature or human abilities, salvation is utterly unable, impossible, no exceptions. But with God, all things are possible. God is able. Why do we need to even discuss what human abilities there may or may not be? We may or may not have. Who cares? At the end of the day, that doesn't come into the picture when we're talking about salvation. I can't. God can. End of story. Now, where Peter goes with this is very interesting. The disciples were probably just all thinking, well, if that rich young man can't be saved, then none of us can. Now Jesus has said, God is able to save even a man like a rich young ruler, and God is able to save anyone else. So hopefully, the disciples at least understood him to say, God can even save you twelve. But Peter, oh Peter, he seems to twist everything. Look at Peter's presumptuous question in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter heard Jesus tell the rich young ruler, that he must sell everything and follow Jesus in order to have eternal life. Peter starts doing some mental calculations. Well, we've done that, haven't we? So surely, since we did that without having Jesus even to tell us that we needed to, there must be some extra special bonus for us, even beyond eternal life reserved for us. By the way, is Peter's assertion even true? Peter, Andrew... James, John, and Matthew, we know for sure, left their jobs. But haven't the disciples been meeting in Peter's house? Haven't we met Peter's mother-in-law earlier in this gospel? And we're going to see James and John's mother in chapter 20. Peter's assertion and question doesn't sound much like childlike dependence. Nevertheless, 
Jesus doesn't chastise Peter here, at least not at first. There are indeed royal rewards for kingdom children. Look at Jesus' response to Peter and the rest of the disciples in verses 28 to 30. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Verse 30 is intended to be a rebuke to Peter. And the parable that follows in chapter 20, which we'll explore next Sunday, provides the full lesson Peter The disciples and you and I need to learn. Peter's question was essentially, what's in it for us? Peter might think he and the disciples are firsts because of their sacrifices, unlike the rich young ruler who showed himself to be a last, even though they previously would have viewed him as one of the firsts. Jesus' answer to Peter takes us into the realm of end times theology, eschatology, Jesus specifies the time frame of the promised reward as in the new world. This is a fascinating Greek word. We could make it literal as the again beginning or the regenesis. Jews of the day used the term to refer to the renewal of the world after the flood, as well as the rebirth of Israel as a nation after the exile. It only appears in one other place in the New Testament, in Titus 3.5, where Paul is describing regeneration, the new birth of sinners as Christians. So when is this new beginning supposed to take place? Surely the word describes the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. However, Jesus further specifies this time frame as when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. When does Jesus sit on his glorious throne? Jesus ascends to his throne after he dies on the cross and rises from the dead. And this cluster of events, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, is what initiates the new creation. So that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Literally, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Thus, believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, become citizens of the heavenly kingdom, participants in the new creation, the moment they begin to trust in Jesus. Jesus is reigning as king today, exercising his gracious sovereignty at the right hand of God. However, the old creation... The cursed and fallen creation continues its groaning existence. Thus, the new creation has already begun, but it is not yet complete. The kingdom has been inaugurated already, but it has not yet been consummated. So, if Jesus has ascended, if he is sitting on his glorious throne now, if the new world has begun and Jesus' followers are truly citizens there today, when will the disciples sit on these twelve thrones? That seems to await their resurrection. I believe we read about the fulfillment of this promise in Revelation 20, verse 4, where John describes his vision, Then I saw thrones, 
He doesn't tell us how many. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. He doesn't specify who they are. Nowhere in Scripture, as far as I can tell, is their activity of judging or ruling actually described. So here, there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot that's left untold to us about that aspect of the future. So we dare not speculate too much. The twelve, who won't include Judas, but apparently will include Matthias, the one chosen to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1, will perhaps be granted some kind of unique authority after the resurrection. Maybe the uniqueness of their authority will be in their exercising of some kind of judgment related to the 12 tribes of Israel specifically. It's unclear, and there's lots of disagreement, and I won't say much more about that. John's vision, however, to complicate matters even further, goes on to describe the participants of the first resurrection, which seems to be all believers of all times, as reigning with Christ on the earth for the millennium, exercising some kind of royal authority as well. So it's not like this is limited to the twelve. All of Jesus' servants also will reign with Christ forever and ever in the new creation, according to Revelation 22.5. So it's hard to discern whether the twelve's role will be different from all the rest of the saints. But here in Matthew, Jesus wants the twelve at least to know that their following him during, their minist- during his ministry will be rewarded with an exercise of some kind of authority in the new creation or in the millennium or both. But in verse 29, Matthew 19, Jesus also indicates that everyone who does what Peter says that he and the rest of the twelve had done, everyone who does what the rich young ruler refused to do will be rewarded a hundredfold. And Mark makes it clear that Jesus specifies that this reward even occurs during this life. We, the shared life of Christians in the church is being described. We are family together. And Jesus intends that fact to be comforting, particularly to those who lose family because they choose to follow Jesus. But notice also that it's these, all of these who follow Jesus, who will inherit eternal life. Note the inheritance language. Eternal life is offered as a gift, an inheritance. It cannot be earned by deeds nor purchased with money. It is received by those who are adopted as heirs in the family of God. You don't sign up for this. You don't volunteer to become an heir. God chooses His heirs. But it is not unconditional. Rather, His power... His ability ensures that the impossible conditions, the impossible conditions of repentance and faith are granted to those He chooses to be His heirs. God alone is good. God alone is able. God alone saves. And God alone receives all the glory. Would you pray with me? Father, this story always challenges us when we approach it, because we in this culture, it's hard to claim poverty for any of us as individuals when we compare that to people around the world and other nations. We are blessed. You have gifted us with great wealth. 
But now the challenge comes. Does it own us? Does it master us? Do we find ourselves driven to pursue more and more of it so that we might be secure, we might be safe? Do we even have a hint in our thinking that what you've given us might be something we could use for our own advantage and even hold up in your face and say, see what we have? Don't we deserve from you more? Pull us back from the sense of entitlement that traps so many of us and help us to see your grace yet again. Help us to receive everything with thanksgiving. Help us to take an inventory of our lives. More importantly, an inventory of our hearts. And determine ever so clearly what's ruling our affections these days. And give us that grace needed to repent. And if that means we have to throw some stuff away, if that means we have to downsize, give us the grace to be joyful and do it. Help us to pull away from the sadness and the sorrow that this rich young man experienced when he was challenged to get rid of something. Help us to find find joy, to sell all that we have, to gain that pearl of great value, and to do so with great joy, knowing that what you have provided, relationship with you for eternity, and all these other things, is far far surpassing in value anything we could accumulate in this world or in this life, even for a hundred years. So thank you for being good to us. Thank you for your goodness being on display. Help us to respond to that goodness by trusting you alone for salvation and for everything else. You really are the source of everything that's good in this world. And so we seek to give you thanks specifically for those things. Thank you for loving us so deeply. Help us to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.